Welcome. I'm Kevin Smith with Arite Incident Response. I'm excited to share actual incident response cases, chat about IT security, and introduce you to the most influential players in the industry. With that, let's get moving. And thanks for joining this episode of Security Superpowers. Good morning. I'm Kevin Smith with Arite Incident Response. And today we'll be talking about the future of data transfer from the EU to the United States. Joining me today is Richard Shanus. He's a graduate at Duke University School of Law, holds several certifications in information privacy, and he's a board member of the Analytics and Big Data Society. He's also the head of Hallbooth Smith's data privacy and security practice, and he works with national and global companies on data privacy and compliance issues. Hallbooth Smith is a U.S. law firm with offices in eight states with over 250 practicing attorneys. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Kevin. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and uh, thank you for the invitation from Arite. So uh, we're going to dive in and um, discuss uh, what recently just hit the news. Um, and I'm just going to start with uh, Mark Zuckerberg started to complain that he was going to pull Facebook uh, operations out of the EU. And I think that probably took a few people by surprise, but what led up to that? Um, and, and it's, I got to believe that it's something that's been rooted in uh, how each uh, country and, and economic uh, region manages data. Could you give us uh, a history of, of why this issue is coming to a head and why it's such a mess? Sure, Kevin. So the transfer of personal data from United, uh, excuse me, from the EU to the United States uh, ha has been somewhat of an issue really since the mid-90s when the EU passed their first uh, privacy directive. And they said that the United States laws do not protect personal information or personal data sufficiently enough and that if a company wants to transfer personal data from the EU to the U.S., they had to put certain safeguards in place. One of those was something called a safe harbor, which was simply that the company in the U.S. Uh, agreed to certain safeguards for personal information. And uh, several years ago, there was a lawsuit brought by a fellow by the name of Max Schrems uh, in the EU saying that the safe harbor was insufficient the EU Court of Justice struck down the safe harbor. That was known as the Schrems 1 decision. Mm -hmm. So fairly quickly, there was something put in its place, which was called a privacy shield, the EU-US privacy shield. And similarly, it would involve a US company self-certifying that they complied with certain safeguards to protect the privacy of personal information. And it was okay to then transfer the personal information from the EU to the U.S. Well, along comes Mr. Schrems again, and he filed a lawsuit uh, to strike down the privacy shield, saying it was not sufficient. And after several years, the EU Court of Justice just this past summer agreed with Mr. Schrems, and that became known as the Schrems II decision, and they struck down the privacy shield. Hmm. So... Uh, it made it more difficult to transfer that data from the EU to the U.S. Another mechanism that was used uh, that allowed the transfer is something called standard contract clauses, which was somewhat similar to the privacy shield. 
And it was some provisions that if a U.S. company said, yes, we agree to these provisions and the standard contract clauses, it was legal to transfer that data. And what the Court of Justice did when they struck down that privacy shield, they said, well, you know, these standard contract clauses are pretty darn similar to the privacy shield. We're not going to invalidate the standard contract clauses, but we'll tell you they're not sufficient unless you do uh, or take some additional measures to safeguard the, uh, the personal information. And that was effective immediately. So what it essentially did was uh, for any company that had been relying on either the privacy shield or the standard contract clauses to transfer data from the EU to the U.S., they were uh, in violation of the law as soon as that, that uh, decision was handed down. There was no grace period. Uh, it was, you know, you're up a creek and we're not even going to give you a paddle. And, and that's what led us to where we are today and, and the Facebook uh, uh, pronouncement that, that you mentioned earlier, uh, where Facebook threatened, uh, well, they say it's not a threat. I think it's a threat where they said, Hey, if you completely ban the transfer of personal data from the EU to the U S then, you know, Facebook said, we'll just pull out of the EU. We have 410 million active users, but we'll just pull out. And hmm. that's the mess with, that we're in today. Explain why, um, this, the, the, the striking down of the privacy shield, uh, initiative wasn't being picked back up with GDPR or why GDPR doesn't even apply in this case. Well, you know, under GDPR using the privacy shield or the standard contract clauses were two permissible mechanisms to uh, that can be used to transfer personal data from the EU to the US because the concern of the EU is that the privacy laws in the US are not sufficient to protect data. Uh, we do have relatively weak uh, privacy laws. They're industry specific, you know, HIPAA for healthcare, something called Gramm-Leach-Bliley for the financial sector, but not really a national type or federal privacy law. Mm -hmm. So it was the standard contract clauses and the privacy shield that, that filled that gap. But what concerned the EU Court of Justice was that in the, in the U.S. we have various intelligence agencies, uh, NSA, CIA, that really have some pretty broad access to getting different types of warrants. We, we, we're familiar with the FISA warrants and FISA court from the uh, Trump-Russia uh, investigation. And so the concern was that these intelligence agencies could get access too easily. And so because of that, uh, the, the uh, privacy shield was struck down. And so under GDPR, there are uh, there's a mechanism called binding uh, corporate rules. I won't get into that. That's a little bit of a different topic. Hardly anyone uses those. Um, but it pretty much said that now under the GDPR, um, there's not a mechanism for legally transferring data uh, on a broad scale. Uh, to the U.S. and and that's that was the problem and that's why uh, it it's really a, a violation of GDPR 
to continue that transfer without further provisions. You're saying that those mechanisms like the the privacy shield and standard contract clauses actually are uh, provisions that govern that transfer. And once those have been struck down and or considered to not be uh, effective enough, it really renders the GDPR well, it, it it basically cuts the whole data transfer concept out of the GDPR. Is that is that what I heard? Uh, yeah, that that's uh, essentially right. What it what it means is those were the two main mechanisms: the Privacy Shield and the Standard Contract Clauses for transferring data legally under GDPR from the EU to the U.S. Now that those two are now now the Privacy Shield is completely gone. Standard contract clauses, I'll say, are on life support. Uh, <laughs> and the reason I say that is technically they were not invalidated by the EU Court of Justice, but the, the Court of Justice said just the standard contract clauses by themselves are not enough anymore. You need other provisions to go with that. They didn't tell us exactly what other provisions. They just said you need more. So, so yeah, uh, essentially under GDPR, the two biggest mechanisms used to transfer data to the, from the EU to the U.S. are either dead or on life support. Transferring data could be potentially illegal based on the fact that there's no mechanism? Or Well, the, it, there is a, a, a consent mechanism where someone can consent to the transfer of data from the EU to the US. And it's just the EU to the US. We're not concerned with transfer from the US to the EU. But uh, I think an example might be, uh, again, mm -hmm. let's say you're in Grand Rapids and, and let's say you're a vendor. And I'll, I'll use an analogy in the hospitality industry because I do a lot of work in that industry. And let's say you're a global hospitality company. You have hotels in the EU. But, uh, Kevin, you're a vendor in Grand Rapids and you have this great product, this this electronic product. And for you to provide that that product or that service to the hotels in the EU, the EU hotels need to send their guest data to you in Grand Rapids for you to do whatever you do with the data to perform your service. Um, the, the minute. And let's say you were relying on either the privacy shield or the standard contract clauses for that personal data to be transferred to you in the U.S. The minute that court decision came down, invalidating the, the privacy shield, saying standard contract clauses are only good if you have additional provisions with them, you were in violation of GDPR the minute that that decision came down because there was no grace period. There was no, let us figure this out. We'll, you're okay for a few months. Let us figure out how we can, can fix this. And then everyone's going to be responsible again. It wasn't that way. It was just the, the minute the decision came down, that transfer became illegal. And, and that seems to be uh, standard operating procedure. I, I've, I've seen the, the GDPR, um, initiative uh, evolve over time. And to be quite frank, they it, it feels a lot like one step forward, six steps back, because a lot of the things that they're actually asking of organizations aren't supported by uh, how to remediate the problem, right? And, and I think that that 
kind of leads us to the next, the, the big question here is you, you, you take the mechanism of data transfer out of uh, off the table. Essentially, you don't frame it in, in a, in a way that says, okay, well you can transfer data provided that you check all these check boxes. How, how do we fix this? I mean, how, how do we, it, it's obviously in the hands of legislature or the legislators, which by the way, scares me a little bit because that that's going to take a long time. Um, but if, if history repeats itself here, the solution is, is what, uh, other than waiting? <laughs> yeah. Well, you used a key phrase there when you said this takes a long time and, and that's part of the problem and the, the world of technological advancement moves so quickly that it, it almost seems that the moment any legislation is passed, uh, technology has already gone beyond the legislation. So, you know, where we go from here, as I said, the, the EU Court of Justice gave very little direction uh, on how to fix this. Uh, standard uh, new standard contract clauses or revised standard contract clauses are in the works. The problem is those were in the works even before this court decision, this Schrems II decision. We don't know when those standard contract clauses will be finalized, approved, and published for use. And when they are published, we don't even know if they will account for this particular issue that has come up. Uh, that being the, the issue of U.S. intelligence agencies having too much access, supposedly, to data. Mm -hmm. So we don't know if standard contract clauses will be a help or not. Uh, uh, the supervisory authorities that enforce the data protection laws in the EU have also not been especially helpful. There has been a little bit of guidance from one of the supervisory authorities in Germany where they address uh, uh, some of the provisions that can be added to the standard contract clauses, such as encryption of personal data, notice to data subjects uh, that would limit uh, accessibility by the intelligence agencies. You know, the, the other aspect is uh, it, it, it gave me a, a good rise that just a a few months after this decision, uh, a white paper was put out by the U.S. Department of Commerce, which was essentially, to be blunt, kind of a screw you statement <laughs> to the EU Court of Justice, because what they said in this white paper was a court of justice in, in Europe. The, we have so many limitations and safeguards regarding intelligence agencies access to data that you completely ignored. You did not pay attention. And then they, they go through in this white paper, a great list of all the, the safeguards that are in place and said, you ignored them. So uh, don't tell us that we don't protect personal data. Don't tell us that we're any different than national governments and other countries that also have access to personal data. So in, in the short term, that the, the best answer to me is using that white paper that points out all of these safeguards uh, and supplementing standard contract clauses. Now, the problem is 
we like I said, we've not been given guidance that says if you do A, B and C, that'll be enough. So we really are still shooting at a, a moving target. But the other aspect is you also have to look at the type of data that's involved. I'll use the hospitality industry again and, and guest data. Is guest data really a high target, high priority target for intelligence mm-hmm. agencies? I don't think so. I think theoretically, could you have a known terrorist that stays at a particular hotel and CIA wants to get the information from the hotel about that terrorist that stayed there for uh, a week uh, at some point in time? But that's another aspect that you look at. So I think it's really a matter of working with what we have using the guideline of the safeguards that are in place from that U.S. uh, Department of Commerce white paper, taking the little direction we have and supplementing those those standard contract clauses. Uh, You know, it's supposed to be on a, a kind of a case by case basis, but that is really the best solution that I see in the short term. So take the white paper, walk it down to parliament and say, hey, guys, work this out. (laughs) (laughs) This into your contract. I mean, it's probably six doors down, right? (laughs) It's not like it's a... Exactly. So you wonder how much of this, honestly, um, you know, is there some data snobbery going on in the EU where they you know, stick up their nose at the U.S. because of the, the laws that, that we have? Um, is it a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a data grab, if you will, a, a type of data localization or uh, data commercialization to uh, improve the status of, of the EU as a data center? If you will, data data is seems to be data is money, data is power these days, and to limit the the transfer, uh, you know, don't we really don't know? That's an interesting point. Uh, you could characterize Russia's data localization as we just don't want people sharing data, right? And and we want to censor our citizens because we don't want them sharing secrets of what we've got going on here. And same could be said, I think, about China. Do you see this as, you know, the United States is kind of this free-flowing hub of data, but then all of a sudden you have countries popping up all over the globe where they're just going to be like, hey, guess what? We're not going to share data. We're going to regulate the the connection to our data lake uh, completely. Yeah, Kevin, you, it's the new currency, right? Do you, do you see that um, as such? Yeah, you, you do have other countries uh, following suit. Like you said, it started in Russia and the uh, Russian uh, public statement as to why they, they had a data localization law is they wanted to protect the data of their citizens. Of course, the immediate suspicion is that it was really a method to be able to spy uh, on on people in their country. Similar thing with, with China. Uh, obviously, both uh, communist uh, governments, and, and so they're, they're viewed with suspicion. But even India now, in their proposed uh, data privacy law, which is not in effect, has concepts of uh, what's called data mirroring uh, and data localization, which the, the the distinction between the two are a little bit fuzzy, but, you know, we don't look at India as being the, this communist controlled country, yet they're having a, a similar law uh, to be put in place. 
So uh, I think uh, we have to look at it from the commercial aspect. And, you know, when we think of the EU, certainly they're not uh, a group of communist countries. It's not a communist bloc. So we don't think generally of the spying aspect, which is why I look more to the commercial aspect. And uh, even though, you know, all this comes from the decision by the European Court of Justice a few months ago, which was based on, you know, it was a lawsuit brought by a private citizen. It wasn't like the government went out on their own and just said, we're going to pass the, you know, reach this decision so that data does not get get transferred. But once that lawsuit was filed, was it just a, an opportunity to uh, increase the uh, European place in the world, if you will, as a data center and require companies that want to do business in Europe or companies that are located elsewhere but want to do business with companies in Europe would have to have data centers uh, in the Mm -hmm. EU and give the EU that much control. And it also is of commercial benefit by increasing the use of data centers. Hmm. The new trade, uh, it's a a new commodity. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And and I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, just like wheat or corn uh, or steel, those are uh, tax revenue generating industries that that, that the government certainly uh, benefits from, but also the citizens. I mean, I think that that's a really... It's one thing to say, well, I'm going to I'm going to uh, create tariffs uh, on on automotive parts uh, in an effort to keep uh, small factories here in the United States or wherever. Um, it, this is an interesting development and one that, quite frankly, I mean, when you look at the market capitalization of Google and Apple and and uh, uh, Facebook and yeah, I mean these are giant, giant companies that their product is data. Yeah, um, they're, they're not not just their product, but they need that data to provide the products and services. And the more data they have, the more effective they are, and the more clients want to sign up with them. And I think that you know you're going to find that this phenomenon is going to it's going to proliferate across the globe i think once people realize wow data is a very uh has a is a very powerful commodity to be in control of um do you ever foresee the united states hunkering down yeah you know i think one of the issues is theoretically if the eu said that the privacy laws in the u.s were sufficient to protect personal data, then you're not worried about a privacy shield or standard contract clauses. You would not need them. The problem is getting such legislation in the U.S. There have been several that have been proposed, but without getting into political commentary, it seems that the way things are in our in in Congress that uh, this is just not very high up on the the level of importance to get something passed. I mean, just recently, uh, within the past few months, something called the SAFE Act was proposed. And it's a comprehensive, uh, they're all really, the the last several that have been proposed, comprehensive data, privacy, and security national legislation. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we had something like that, it, I think that would be an important game changer. Uh, you still have the issue, does, how does that deal with uh, the access to information by intelligence agencies? You know, but the problem with national legislation is, number one, getting Congress to do something. The sticking points always seem to be uh, two things. Number one, uh, would the national legislation, privacy legislation in the U.S., should it give private citizens the right to sue if there's a privacy violation? As opposed to it's just up to whatever the agents, governmental agency is to enforce it and maybe penalize and issue fines to companies that violate that privacy law, but not to give the right to individual citizens to sue and get money for it. So that that's the sticking point, number one. And uh, this is also across party lines, Republican versus Democrat. Mm-hmm. And then the second sticking point is always should the national law supersede any state laws so that if the state has a law and it conflicts with the national law, the national law, no pun intended, trumps the state law. Um, And those are two sticking points for every one of these proposed national privacy laws. And again, like I said, it's always between, uh, or excuse me, always along party lines, uh, Republican versus Democrat on those two issues. So Congress just needs to get out of their own way and get something like this passed. Yeah. And, and you know, you're saying, I mean, anytime a federal law supersedes state law gets hairy anyway, mostly, you know, yeah, um, it's kind of counter to how things are generally. I, I'm going to ask a pretty blunt question, and I just, you know, I mean, you've alluded to it a couple of times uh, by bringing up intelligence agencies. These countries that are creating these safe harbors or data localization uh, boundaries, is it because we're just snooping around too much? Yeah, you know, I, I don't think so in the sense. Now, now let me give a mention a caveat here. I am not an expert on intelligence laws either in the United States or uh, around the world. Uh, But one thing I'll mention is that it it was interesting that in that white paper I mentioned from the uh, Department of Commerce, one of the things they mention in there is, well, there are laws that let intelligence agencies in other countries uh, get information as well, because uh, of course, in today's world with terrorism and so forth, and and there's a need for the government to be able to obtain that, but also that our intelligence agencies in the U.S., whether it's the CIA, NSA, they share this data with the intelligence agencies of other countries. So, mm-hmm. so they're getting it. Uh, as well. So when there's information that is picked up through some of these uh, investigations of potential terrorists, and certainly if the U.S. picks up information on someone and it's pertinent to the EU or or a terrorist organization in the EU or personnel, that information is shared. So really the indication from the Department of Commerce is this is a little bit of the pot calling the kettle black by picking on the U.S., Richard, this is fascinating, uh, and and I've really enjoyed learning uh, so much about this topic. And I and I think you know, we we hear these news stories on television, and you know, when Mark Zuckerberg says, "I'm just going to pull out of the EU," um, it it 
you, you think immediately that may, maybe Mark is just being unreasonable, but the reality of it is, is the, the EU is their own worst enemy when it comes to legislating this stuff, because I think that they set rules, but then they don't give you uh, any guidelines on how to be compliant. Uh, I, I know that that's been the case with GDPR in my experience with it uh, and just trying to comply with it as a as an IT professional and a, an IT security professional. Um, and I really do appreciate your time, effort, and energy that you put into this. It's been, um, quite frankly, a, a joy to hang out with you this morning. Thank you so much, Kevin. I, I appreciate being here. I love to talk about this stuff. It, it It's a great area where I practice because it's always changing. It's always interesting. And, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Have a great weekend, and I'm sure we'll be talking soon. Thank you. Thanks again for Richard Chanis from Hall Booth Smith for joining us today to discuss data localization. I'd like to thank Colin Hanks and Severine Fortin for their tireless efforts in supporting this podcast. And most definitely you, our listener, for sharing your time with us today. As always, stay smart, stay safe, and join us again soon for another episode of Security Superpowers.